Hello, my friends. Welcome to Rainbow Parenting, the queer and gender affirming podcast for anyone with littles in their lives. Today, I'm talking with Emmy Aguilar, who is an indigenous two-spirit educator, arts educator, with a particular specialty in theater for young audiences. Emmy and I have a ton in common. We both come from the theater for young audiences, TYA world. So we had lots and lots to talk about, especially about Indigenous arts ed and talking about two-spirit identity and talking about Indigenous ideas around childhood, as well as both of our shared experience, Emmy's experience as an indigenous person and my experience as a Jewish person with stories of genocide in our ancestry, in our cultural ancestry. So we're going to get to a lot. Some of it's going to be a little bit heavy, but I think we had an incredibly fruitful conversation that I hope you can get a lot of knowledge from, especially while we're talking about what's happening with trans kids in uh today's political climate. If you all want to support Rainbow Parenting and you've been enjoying the episodes and want to help us out and help us make more seasons and more episodes, you can support us over on the Queer Kid Stuff Patreon page. It's just $5 a month, or you can do $50 for the whole year. We put up weekly content over there for bonus episodes for the podcast. We also have our Dear Queer Kid Letter series, where we commission queer and trans grown-ups to write letters to today's queer and trans kids. We're also going to start putting a lot of other awesome stuff on there, so please go check that out. Lots of awesome content. If you cannot support us monetarily. That is totally okay. I understand. No hard feelings. But I would absolutely love if you could share this episode or one of our other episodes with a friend, two friends, three friends, a group of friends that you have who you think might benefit from this podcast. We are very new. We're in our first season. And we're still finding our audience of people who are interested in this work and queer and gender affirming practices around young kids. So if you could share one of your favorite episodes, that would be awesome to bring more listeners into our community. I would so, so, so appreciate that. All right, before I get into my conversation with Emmy, here's what you need to know. All right, so Emmy and I talk a lot about theater for young audiences in this episode. And we're particularly talking about it because both of us have a background in this space. We'll get into specifics about that in our conversation. But before we get there, I wanted to talk a little bit about the history of children's theater and give you a little bit of context for getting into this conversation from the theater for young audiences perspective. So what we know today as children's media really started with children's theater and theater for young audiences. Children's theater, as we know it from Western society, really originated in 
England in the UK. The play Peter Pan by J.M. Barry is recognized as the first piece of children's theater. And there's a lot of uh, problematic stuff that comes with the origins of Western children's theater. To connect the dots for you, Emmy, who I'm talking with today, is an indigenous two-spirit person, and I'm a trans non-binary person. And the origins of children's theater, especially when talking about Peter Pan. Peter Pan has a pretty terrible indigenous representation of it. And so that's kind of where we're starting from and the baseline that we're building a history of children's theater, which then when we get to America and the advent of television and film and animation becomes what we know today as mainstream children's media. Another part of the origin of children's theater that comes specifically out of England and the UK is the idea of panto or pantomime theater. This is particularly happens around the holiday season in December, and there are plays that get put up, children's theater plays, this still happens today, that a, a primary feature of those shows, those holiday shows, is the man in a dress trope. Usually a comedian is cast in the show and they perform in drag. And drag is fine, <laughs> but not when a man in a dress is a punchline. Very similar to how the title character functions in Mrs. Doubtfire. No shade to Robin Williams, but uh, I personally have a hard time watching Mrs. Doubtfire now when there's a trans panic scene in the bathroom at the restaurant in the one of the big climaxes of that movie. The same thing happens in the first Paddington movie, if that's a more recent watch for you. There's another trans panic scene where the father in the movie dresses up in women's clothing and it becomes the butt of the joke, which is transphobic. There's a lot more to this history of children's theater and theater for young audiences that started in the UK. But I just wanted to point out that kind of the history that we're working from has a baseline anti-Indigenous, anti-trans tropes that are baked into the format and the medium. And that has trickled through what we know today as modern children's media and modern children's theater. Because children's theater still exists, absolutely, but can still be an incredibly oppressive space for folks of marginalized identities. So that's a little bit of context around the history of theater for young audiences and children's theater. And the only other thing I want to give you context for around that conversation, there's a little bit of inside baseball talk um, between Emmy and I around sort of different like kinds of theories around theater for young audiences and children's theater, specifically different kind of formats. So we talk a little bit about forum theater and about theater of the oppressed. So forum theater is very interactive theater. You might bring an audience member on stage to reenact something. Um, it's very improvisational and is uh, used in a lot of kind of activist formats of using children's theater and theater for young audiences. The um, quote unquote father of that theatrical practice is Augustus Boal, um, who was a very influential theater director and kind of coined this term theater of the oppressed. Augusto Boal was a Brazilian theater director, and he kind of built this idea, a, a new kind of form of interactive theater for youth and children's theater um, that I highly recommend 
you take a look at if you're at all interested in what kind of different formats of interactive theater are possible, and particularly looking at social justice and activist practices within the arts. So that's a little bit of context for some of the stuff we're going to be talking about and a little bit of context, historical context for the arts cultural mechanism where Emmy and I are having a conversation about. All right, that's enough for me. Here's my conversation with Emmy. My friends, welcome to Rainbow Parenting. I am here with a very special guest that I am so stoked to have this conversation with. Can you tell us who you are and your pronouns? Yeah, I'm Ana. My name is Emmy Aguilar. My pronouns are she and they. I'm Coatecan, and I'm calling in from our homelands in Central Texas. Beautiful. Thank you so much. And uh, I like to come to this work as whole humans. So how are you doing today? Today I'm fine. I've had a lot of meetings today, so mm. I'm feeling, a you know, I have anxiety and so I always second guess everything I say. So I'm having a lot of moments like that where it's like, oh, maybe I hurt that person's feelings by saying something, but you know, that's just anxiety. Yep. That's just our brains playing tricks on us. <laughs> and uh, tell us what you do. Tell us, tell us who you are. So I've been an educator for 10 years and I taught theater, middle school, all the way through college levels. I did leave the classroom this past spring and transitioned into a nonprofit organization. So I now work for Illuminative, which mm -hmm. is a Native women-led racial and social justice organization. So that's what I do now. Amazing. We have a lot of overlaps in the work that we do, which I think we'll keep talking about, but I think is the most obvious overlap in what we do, but also and like our queerness and, and all of that. But I, I also come from a theater background. And I, I think that's so fun seeing where like these overlaps in like justice work come from through our queer identities. And then also like this background of theater and like youth theater and working with kids. And those are kind of really important parts of, of my background. And, and I'm curious curious, kind of going back and getting into your story a little bit, where this all started for you. So I always had a vivid imagination. And I think that that ultimately came from survival. I grew up in a really tumultuous household. And so I think um, imagining and playing with my imagination was a way of surviving and escaping and creating joy for myself and those around me. So I always was really into, you know, like Mr. Rogers, mm -hmm. Sesame Street. Um, Mr. Rogers, though, honestly, was my favorite show growing up. I still love that show and I still go back and watch reruns. Like I just love, especially the trolley scenes. That was just so magical to me. You know, growing up in um, Southern Arizona on the Tana Atom Reservation, but I'm not from that nation. I'm, you know, definitely was a guest there. And so that's in the Sonoran Desert. It's um, really beautiful and remote, I would say. At that time, you know, in the 90s, like there wasn't a lot of access to things to do besides be outside and play outside. And that's just what you did. So I was using my imagination a lot in that way. You know, like we put, my brother and I put a scrap piece of wood on a tree and called it a tree house. Hmm. You know, like, we could just come up with these abundant envisionings just with our imaginations. And so I think that that was a way that we like connected with the world and played and, and had fun. And then when 
we moved from Arizona to New York. We moved from our school in Arizona, which was a completely under-resourced school, you know, no after-school activities, no arts programs, none of that. And then we moved, and I didn't even know that those things existed. So that's just all that I knew, right? I loved school. Mm-hmm. I loved school without all those things. So, so then we moved to New York. It wasn't a fancy school or anything, but in New York, the arts are really well-funded. And so every school has arts programs, whether it be choir or band or um, visual art, it's just a part of the curricula there. So I had access suddenly to all these arts programs Mm. and I learned that I could sing because I was in choir and I saw my first musical, Annie. A classic. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, all the characters slamming their mop buckets on the ground just like awoke something in me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Once I saw that, I was like, I have to do this. That was in seventh grade. So my first play was in eighth grade. Mm. And so ever since then, I was always in musicals and plays for the rest of my life. Every single year, multiple plays and musicals. And also in choir. So I was always singing and I took, I worked a restaurant job on the weekend so I could pay for voice lessons for myself from the time I was in like ninth grade through college. And theater was my whole life. So then I went to college for theater and that was a big deal. I'm a first generation college student. Mm. So going to college was a big deal, but then going for the arts was a big deal too. Yeah. Um, that's a whole journey, I'm sure. <laughs> Beautiful. No, I and I love getting the full context. I think I think it's so important to think about our own childhoods as we're thinking about working with children. And I think there's a lot of like inner child work that comes in working with children, especially in justice spaces. And I want to pick out what you're talking about with Mr. Rogers. I, I loved Mr. Rogers growing up too, and I get a lot of inspiration from him in my work generally. And I think something that's so interesting is see, and I've been talking about this with some colleagues recently, that I think that there's been this kind of like new generation of children's media makers and people who are working with kids who are kind of, not to like use Christian language for this, but like like disciples of Mr. Rogers, like a Mr. Rogers generation of creatives and makers. And I think that that's something that's become really beautiful about this space and like talking to you and talking to other people to make this podcast. It's something that I've started witnessing and the legacy of his work and how we can continue to push it forward. Because I think that like there was a lot that was really beautiful about what Fred Rogers did, but it also like wasn't quite enough in some ways. I'm curious if you agree with that. And I'm curious about in what ways his work wasn't quite enough for you in particular. Mr. Rogers was such a constant presence in my life. You know, I grew up in poverty. We didn't have anything. So when we did have a TV, the consistency of programs was really helpful. And Mr. Rogers, it always starts the same way, right? He's like putting on his sweater, putting on his shoes and having stability in that way was very helpful. Mm. You always know what to expect. And, you know, Mr. Rogers as a person outside of his character of Mr. Rogers in the show actually was a huge advocate for the arts, right? He spoke Mm -hmm. in front of the Senate to advocate for arts funding. And so he, you know, he was doing real activism. And then he also was working to combat invisibility of Black folks on TV and Mm -hmm. brown folks on TV. So, you know, that show was a positive presence. I think as a child, I wasn't necessarily 
looking critically for what was not happening or what I wasn't seeing. Although when I was represented in children's media, I gravitated toward that, right? So then what is the one problematic (laughs) only existing children's media that existed at the time in the 90s that shows us at all, right? Mm -hmm. And it's the the horrible ones. It's like Pocahontas and Peter Pan. So, you know, that's what I watched. So I would say Mr. Rogers, you know, could have done more, but, you know, I love Mr. Rogers. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely love Mr. Rogers. I I think I I speak to like where like he maybe wasn't always enough as as a creator now and like as an adult kind of like looking back on that experience and thinking about like, okay, like we're talking about like every kid is special and that message is beautiful. And now I'm kind of looking back at and I'm like, okay, like what are different kinds of specialness and what are different ways that we can uplift like specific children? And I think speaking to like black and brown kids and like speaking to folks who have different marginalized identities and marginalized genders and talking about like what would Mr. Rogers have done in native representation on that show that could have pushed his mission even farther. And so I think that like that's what's really beautiful about this generation of makers is that we can be doing that work and continuing his legacy in that way. That's kind of how I'm thinking about that. Yeah, no, I I hear you and I'm definitely there. I think I'm, I have such low expectations from media representing us at all ever Mm. so when we are represented it's like whoa wow thank you so much and i am still conditioning myself to get out of that Mm. you know like that's actually not acceptable yeah of like teaching yourself even that like you can demand quality right Mm -hmm. yeah so let's get into it a little bit so this is a big question but Native representation, particularly children's media, what's wrong? What's going on? Well, I think right now there's actually a big boom for Native representation. There's a lot happening that's good. You know, we have Molly of Denali, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. And wow, if that existed when we were kids, you know, how transformative that would be. But I'm so grateful that kids have that show now. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's so much more to be done, right? There's a lot of inaccurate, harmful tropes and stereotypes that exist in a lot of representation right now, particularly in Westerns. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of, for some reason, when people do Westerns, they have to put us in, in these tropes. And so that's something we're definitely still seeing, right? Like, why can't we just be regular Native folks in a show alongside the white people in the show? Like, why do we have to be exoticized or, you know? Yeah. There's a lot of, when I think about positive representation, I'm thinking about like what I'm mostly interested in, right? Which is theater. Mm -hmm. So I'm like more well-versed in what's happening in that realm. One of my elders and her daughter created this play called Yanawana's Legend of the Blue Bonnet, Mm. which tells the Kwawatekin story of how the blue bonnets came to be in Texas. Mm. It's a story that young people get to see themselves reflected on stage live in front of them when they're seeing that play, right? Young Indigenous people, I mean. And it has, you know, our language in it. And so that's like, those are the kinds of things I'm looking for. Like, how are our young people seeing themselves and all of that? And then like getting to meet the actors after, right? That's really exciting. I took my students to see that play a couple of years ago. And then 
when it was no longer live running, I had the recording of it that I could make accessible to them. Mm. So that was always the first play that they would see, you know, so that's their foundation, right? Like my foundation for theater, my first play I ever saw was Annie, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody in Annie looks like me. (laughs) Nobody in Annie has anything to do with me, right? Mm -hmm. But I liked the music. I liked, you know, the, the rhythm of it. I liked, you know, just this ensemble of young people. Like I thought it was really awesome, but now you know, we have this new generation of playwrights coming up that are making really excellent plays for young people. And so they're more and more seeing themselves represented on stage, regardless of their identities, right? There's Mm -hmm. an abundance of plays for young audiences that represent multiple identities. Mm. It's not something you're seeing on Broadway and like, quote unquote, theater for adults, but theater for young audiences is way ahead of the game. That's great to hear. I, um, I I came up through theater for young audiences. So that is my actual background in in how I started doing all of this. I I'd studied at Northwestern on, and they have a really, really strong theater for young audiences program there. Yeah, I know. They yeah. probably have so many friends in common. I'm sure, I'm sure we do. Um so yeah, I that's that's the program that I learned in. And that's when I started taking queer theory classes and was like, why well, can't this like queer theory stuff and like the craft work that I've been doing in theater for young oh, audiences. Yeah. I was like, why can't these two things exist? And when I was in college, they didn't. There were like maybe like two or three plays that were written by white cis straight allies. And they were they were lovely little plays. Um I it was the transition of Doodle Pequeno by Gabriel Jason Dean. What well, I directed that my senior year, and we tried to tour it to the local Evanston area, and one of the shows got canceled. So that was kind of like one of my first um, instances of dealing with like a gatekeeper and kind of like quote unquote backlash to queer work for kids. Yeah, I kind of had to like dip out of the theater for young audiences world because of the pretty rampant transphobia and homophobia um, that was in that space. And I'm slowly starting to wade back in because it's my background, but it's also like where all of this started for me in like my career making this stuff, like doing queer storytelling for kids. And so I'm I'm wading my way back in slowly but surely. But it's really lovely to kind of hear how the space has been growing. So I'm, I'm curious about obviously native representation, but also like the queer side of things and like also the intersectional identities of like queerness and native representation and, and kind of where we're at right now with all of that. Um, do you know about the play and then came Tango? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I did. I, I also directed and then came Tango and the playwright Emily Freeman um, is yeah. a friend. Yeah, they're lovely. Okay, yeah. So I went to school with Emily. Oh, amazing. At UT Austin, right? Yeah, okay, yeah. Great. So she was the third year when I was um, a first year coming in. So I got to help with that, you know, the original production of mm. that at UT. And then, you know, saw what happened with that. Um, they also got canceled, right? So basically very similar. Yeah. yeah. So, and this is in Austin, right? So, which, you know, is still in Texas, but like supposedly positions itself as this progressive place. Mm-hmm. It's not right, yeah. but it positions itself that way. But yeah, similar thing to what happened with your tour. It got backlash, got shut down and, you know, which made for a very interesting thesis mm. document for Emily to write. <laughs> I remember reading that thesis. I quoted it yeah. in my own undergraduate thesis. Yeah, <laughs> Isn't that wild? <laughs> Yeah, so that plays out there and of course um is inspired by the book but is very different from the book. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that like I want us to also move toward I, I think we're doing this now culturally, like, you know, for folks that are like in it. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I need us to move away from tolerance talk, right? And yeah. just move away from like being tolerated or just whatever that means, living this idea of like unity or whatever. No. 
we're beyond it. Like you can't have unity if there's no liberation, mm-hmm. you know? So we need plays like that. We need stories like that. Yeah. Stories that are talking about pushing the boundaries in that way. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really curious. I know my answer to this, but I, I'm curious about yours about why, why kids, why theater for young audiences specifically? Why is that important to you? Well, number one, kids are always going to be my number one. Like of any group of people, I'm always going to choose to be with the kids. Mm. Kids are the most creative, the smartest, the most uncensored, right? For, you know, what I'm taught culturally is they're the closest to creation, Mm. which means that they're the closest to like the source of everything and the source of life. Mm. Creative capacity is abundant and it hasn't been harmed yet. It hasn't been cut off yet or censored yet, right? It's just, they are who they are when they're kids. And that's like their truest spirit is when they're kids. You know, that's always going to be my first love is being a teacher and and working with kids. Like I'm always going to be, you know, a huge advocate for making things accessible to young people and is putting their needs and the stories that they need to see and hear and be a part of first. And I think on the opposite end of that, there's elders. Those are our two most marginalized groups, Mm -hmm. young people and elders. And everyone in the middle is doing all this gatekeeping for those groups. But yeah, theater for young audiences for kids. I became really interested in how I was making something that was going to be useful, Mm. that was going to be helpful. So I actually created, um, I devised uh, with a group of collaborators, a play that was like a theater for dialogue play, Mm -hmm. you know, interactive participatory where the audience provides answers that can change the scenario, kind of like theater be oppressed, but Mm -hmm. for young audiences specifically, Mm -hmm. where they see a young person who has adults in their life that breach consent. For example, they might touch their hair without permission, or they might, you know, be giving them little gifts, starting that grooming process, right? And it's up to the young people to flag those things and come up with lists of adults that that character could talk to. Um, So it was a play that was, you know, starting to get at making sure that young people know that they're are adults in their life that can help them if somebody is harming them or makes them uncomfortable. That was a play I came up with with a group of students at UT because I saw that there wasn't something that was like that. And so I filled that gap. Um, So anything that I'm making will always be for young people. And it's always going to be filling a gap. I always want something that's going to be useful. Mm. I love how you articulated why kids, because I, I, and I was getting like a little emotional while you were saying that. We so silo and we so perpetuate the marginalization of children because and I'm going to speak mostly to children elders as well is like absolutely a part of this conversation. Um, And calling out those two groups as well is also calling out the lack of intergenerational communication. Um, But what you were talking about of kids being their most authentic spirit. I mean, I look at photos of myself when I was four or five. And I see that like I was my most like authentic self in my gender in particular. And I also just like see so much happiness in all of those photos. And there's something beautiful in how simple that is. And I always talk about kids as kind of being like blank slates, you know, pre-structural. So like pre, you know, all of these ideas about how society should function, right? And and I like how you're saying it, uh, less about a blank slate and more about like coming into the world in our fullness and 
what does you know, after childhood and like what is happening in childhood that stops that. And for me, at least, it's about like, okay, how can we maintain that wholeness? What can we do and what can we give that child? What knowledge, what information, what experiences, what support can we give that child to maintain that wholeness? And for me, and I think for you as well, stories are a huge part of that. Yeah. And places where they can tell their own stories, Mm -hmm. right? Or they can create stories with others, where they can play. Yeah. And giving a child's voice respect, I think is a huge part of it too. And, And I think pointing out like letting kids tell their own stories and like being guides and conduits and facilitators of children's voices, because there is, I think, a translation that needs to happen sometimes between kids and and adults, because we are so structured in our brains. We have gone through so many lived experiences that have depleted our spirits in a lot of ways and and taken from that wholeness that we once had. We need to be able to remember that. And I think that there is, I've been doing a lot of like inner child healing work and it's really hard, right? It can be really painful, that process. And also like understanding like how you are not whole anymore can also be really painful. And I think when some people feel that pain, it can get violent to an extent, right? Like that can be really hard. And, I, and I'm and i curious about how that feeds into what we're talking about, which is childism and the discrimination of children for being children. And I don't know. I'm curious about your thoughts on like that generational like lack of communication and like what's going on with (laughs) what's going on with childism and like why is this not a conversation that we're having on a larger scale? That's something that frustrates me. I don't know if it frustrates you. Well, I think it all comes back to colonialism, Mm -hmm. right? And like when I say that I'm not only talking about like what happened and is happening to us as indigenous people, but also to everyone else, like Mm -hmm. it doesn't just harm us. Um, It also harms the people that are carrying out that harm. So, you know, one of the ways that the family was even mandated to be structured, right, by the state back in like the early 1900s, right, where suddenly it was like the husband had the rights the wife was basically chattel, right? Mm -hmm. And therefore, so were the children. And that's like kind of the structure of American society, that really horrific structure where, you know, the only person that isn't property is the cishet man. And I think it comes down to that. Like we're still operating in that way Mm -hmm. as a society, right? I'm not talking about individually or in our homes, but as a society, that's still how we're organized. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not natural. It wasn't natural to folks in the countries that they came from. And it's not, wasn't natural here. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not natural to anybody. So it makes sense that everybody's harmed by it. Like it's not how it's supposed to be. Like in my family and many families that I know, children are just a part of everything. Like you just take your kids with you. If you're, you know, going to a, a rally, a protest, if you're going to the doctor, if you're going to like wherever it is, like your kids go with you. I went everywhere with my mom. And that's how I see my friends that are parents parenting their kids. They go everywhere with them. There's not that divide. I think that when you do get that divide, it's like a class thing. Mm. I noticed that like for those of us that are like working class or poor, right? Like that's how it is. Um, but if you can afford childcare, then that separation starts to happen. Hmm, interesting. So, and that's like not a judgment on anybody. That's just like a cultural thing. 
So I think that there's ways that we like perpetuate that separation and then like more and more separation becomes okay. And then, you know, the ways that we honor or don't honor children mm-hmm. is a part of that. So if your children are with you in your most important times, right? Like for us, children are in our ceremonies. They're going with us to the day to day. Like children are a part of you. You are a part of your children. There's no separation, right? But then if you do have that separation, then it becomes okay to have other kinds of siloing like what you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting because I'm I'm kind of looking back over my childhood now. And as you're talking about this, and especially with the class divide, I grew up with access to wealth. And my parents were both incredibly busy in their jobs all the time. And like my dad would stay at work late, he wouldn't come home until like seven or eight at night most nights. And I so I had a lot of childcare growing up. And there was a lot of separation between me and my parents as I grew older. And I think the capitalism of it all too, of like keeping parents at work away from family, away from kids is a part of it. And the wealthier you are and the more access to wealth you have, the more rigid that structure is because you are benefiting from capitalism in a meaningful way that is constructing your family and your family dynamic. That is, I haven't thought about it in that way. And that's really, really interesting. I Yeah. Yeah. Well, and even school, right? Even school mm-hmm. is a part of that. Um, yeah. And then it like, it hurts my heart when I hear people that are parents say things like they're looking forward to all of these activities that they're going to enroll their kids in so that they can be extra busy and they can like have time away from them. I I want people to want to be with their children or why are you having children? Yeah. <laughs> yes, I 100% agree with you. And I also think that like the arts is a beautiful connecting tool that parents can use with their kids. I mean, I think obviously throughout the pandemic, I mean, we've been in lockdown and have been, you know, sharing screens with young people, right? If you have young people in your home. And I think co-viewing is a thing that people are talking a lot more about in kind of mainstream children's media spaces. And like, okay, how can I make something that actually is for preschoolers, but like is for the whole family to watch alongside them too, because we're all in these same spaces together all the time. And the pandemic and that's a whole that's a whole other conversation than how we're sharing spaces still but i think especially theater is you have to be sharing a space with your kid cuz you have to accompany them and bring them to these spaces so i'm i'm curious about yeah the ways that you see art reconnecting people and reforging some of those relationships um, well, I see the arts being used a lot in language revitalization. So mm. people are using uh, songs and images, right? Art making um, to help young people learn their, their native language mm. um, or to reteach other people their native language. I'm seeing, of course, music and theater being used in that way, as well as dance, right? There's many different kinds of dances, ceremonial dances that reconnect people to their language and to their traditions and build that intergenerational learning and intergenerational healing. So that's really good. Theater as well. Like, I just think it's the best. I just think it's the best (laughs) when you take kids to the theater because when it's, when it's a play for young people, Mm -hmm. because then, right, you're supposed to talk. You're supposed to call out when they ask you to call out, or you're supposed to make a noise when they ask you to make a noise Mm -hmm. or move your body You know, like that's all expected. I actually have no tolerance. I actually cannot sit through a full length, quote unquote, adult play. Mm -hmm. 
I don't have the stamina for it anymore because I'm, I've just been doing TYA for so many years that that's my stamina is like an hour yep, <laughs> and yep. that's it. And that's in general for anything that's like for a show, a movie, like I pretty much tune out after that point. And also I just think TYA is better than a lot of like quote unquote adult plays. It's just more inventive and creative. There's so much, it's creatively abundant, right? You're using puppetry, you're using mm. dance, you're using movement, like visual storytelling. There's just so much happening. It's also more friendly towards disabled folks and like making things that's accessible. So that's my standard in a lot of like mainstream, like adult theater doesn't do those things. Mm, yeah, I totally agree. This is uh this episode is a love letter to theater for young audiences. <laughs> <laughs> and the ways in which that we could like continue using it as like this really beautiful medium that's super creative and diverse and like can really like make an impact on people and like their lives and relationships. So this is your moment if you're listening to look up the children's theater, the youth theater that is nearest to you and go and see a show with your young person. This is your call to action for this episode because I don't think everybody knows what their local children's theater is or where it is and that it actually can be fun and it's not just like Barney on stage, right? I think that that is kind of a common misconception about children's theater and perpetuates the childism that we're talking about, right? Of like devaluing art for children as something that is lesser than like, quote unquote, adult arts. So I don't know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about those feelings. You even see that in the field, right? Because mm -hmm. I was in academia for a majority of my adult life, I taught at the college level and being somebody that teaches theater for young audiences and teaches creative drama, you're not treated like a real scholar. You're not treated like a real professor, right? Because you teach people how to work with kids or mm -hmm. you make art for kids and it's not seen as, as valuable. To me, that's a judgment on those people. Mm -hmm. What is your morality that you think that children are not valuable? Yep. This is this is a huge conversation that I think people aren't having at the level it needs to be had, because I think that we're also at a moment in time, right, where like hashtag protect trans kids and like kids, young people, particularly trans and queer kids are literally under legislative attack right now. And it's one thing to like tweet about it and like give money to the ACLU like you do or to actual good like local organizations that are doing good organizing work. But then it's a whole other side of it that's like, okay, like, we actually need to be working with these young people themselves. Like, how can we be fighting this fight and like doing this work and trying to quote unquote, protect trans kids without actually speaking to them and without actually involving them in our justice practices. And like, what is this idea of like protecting? And and I, I worry that it stems into the idea of like childhood innocence, quote unquote. And oh, totally. Yeah. And, and this I, binary, right? Mm -hmm. Of what's for adults and what's for kids. Yes. If something is good, it's good for everyone. Mm -hmm. If it's a good play for kids, it's a good play for everyone. If it's a good movie for young people, there's always going to be the part like that undercurrent that is for the adults in the audience. It definitely has to do with that binary of, of adult child, which is not real. It's not a real thing. We're all just people. Kids are just small humans. The thing that I that I usually say is that like the biggest difference between kids and adults is 
the amount of lived experience they have. So like the amount of times that a child has experienced something like the theater is probably maybe depending on their age, maybe a handful versus an adult who has maybe seen hundreds of shows. And so you're going to approach those situations differently because of that learned and lived experience. But the volume of experience doesn't make either experience of it more valuable. Right. And on the flip side of that, young people are going to have an unfiltered reaction to things. So when you get a young person's reaction, whether it's a laugh or a cry or whatever it is, that is the most authentic reaction you could get to your material because Hmm. young people aren't going to lie. If something's boring, they're going to like move around. They're going to talk, right? If something's really captivating, you have their attention. So they're actually the best test material. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Kids will uh, tell it like it is if they like your thing or not. Um, Yeah. And I think it's interesting to, as someone who also works in kind of children's media in a lot of different kind of industry spaces, right? Um, So coming from the theater, um, I also work in TV. And uh, can you tell me a little bit about your work with Illuminative and kind of the spaces that you're in through that as well? Yeah. So I'm in the pop culture department. So we work in um, the entertainment industry and in Hollywood, TV and film focused on building pathway programs for Mm. native creatives and um, working with industry partners and those big companies to change the industry. That's what we're trying to do. Make it a place where you see native people on screen, you see them behind the camera and we're telling our own stories. Yeah. And I think that that's so important to think of from a context of media for young people. I mean, you touched on this at the very beginning of our conversation, you know, the Pocahontas and the Peter Pan of it all. And, you know, if we're talking about representation of Native peoples and ideas and cultures in, you know, art at large, kids media, I think the pattern in this conversation is getting children and children's art getting siloed. And that is especially true, I think, in kids media and talking about indigenous representation, but also queer representation. Like that's a big part of it, I think, as well. It all has to do with all of these things. It all has to do with, you know, the colonialism of it all, the capitalism of it all. Where is the profit margin? How are we valuing the art itself that is being made for all ages and for kids? And how are we valuing the people who make it? <laughs> Both are are feeling that childism and that oppression. But then again, you know, the largest profiting media conglomerate that we know today, Disney, was built on children's media. And the fact that, you know, capitalism understands that children's media is valuable while culturally devaluing it. And I think that that's happening on purpose, but that's my conspiracy theory. (laughs) Totally. And built through theft, right? Mm. So you have both sides of that. You have like the profiting off of children and families, and then you have the profiting off of genocide, right? Yeah. And I mean, now also talking about queer and trans kids in that conversation too, and like the literal calls to genocide of trans people that we're seeing right now like this. And also as a Jewish person, um, seeing that it's really visceral. It's really intense. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like we can really relate to this in a different way than some other communities can, Mm -hmm. like Native folks and Jewish folks, Mm -hmm. because of having actually experienced genocide. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah, absolutely. So when somebody says that they want to obliterate your community, that's a real thing that we actually understand the impacts of. Like we actually have seen how we've lost our languages, our traditions, our families. Yeah. And like living in a diaspora. And I think the privilege that I have is that I grew up in New York City, which is a majority Jewish, or at least where the school that I that I came up in was a majority Jewish population. And, you know, went to Hebrew school and all of that and was really immersed in those cultural spaces. And I mean, I was taught about the Holocaust in every which way you possibly can teach about the Holocaust. I just grew up with that as a reality of my ancestors and the people who were around and my ancestors and the culture that I've been brought up in and the centuries of oppression that like Jewish people have experienced. It's it's really overwhelming to to doom scroll on Twitter and see a call for genocide of trans people. And I'm like, my ancestors did not survive this <laughs> for me to yeah. be re-experiencing this again in in a different capacity and on a different side of my identity. And it's uh, this is a hard moment to be living in. And I think as people who are concerned with and work with and make things for children, the impact is for me, even greater, because children are the future of culture. If we're not preparing them for making the world a better place, I mean, tikkun olam is like a is a Jewish principle of repairing the world, which is something I come back to a lot. <sighs> yeah, I don't know. This is this is this is heavy. This is a lot, right? Yeah, it is a lot, and it's real, right? Like we, you know, both. Jewish folks and indigenous folks and many other communities are still experiencing genocide, right? Mm. It hasn't stopped. Yeah. So it's real. And when these threats are coming up, it's real. And we're carrying that in ourselves, really, like truly scientifically, we're carrying that in ourselves. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're, we're in a many decades long fight to have our ancestors returned to us that are being hoarded by universities. So when we're talking about these topics, like it's not some like abstract thing, something mm -hmm. that we're currently moving through. So yeah, I'm with you. It's definitely hard. I think like that's why I'm always trying to center queer joy, mm. right? Yeah. That there's so many things that I could take in to make myself sadder. Yeah. But instead, it's actually more helpful if I can focus on the things that are good that are coming out of our communities and like amplifying those things mm -hmm. because I tend to be a critical half glass empty kind of person. Mm. So I actually, it's better for me to like do the labor of shifting that in myself. So that's mm. something that I've noticed and not in a like, let's pretend everything's fine kind of way, but like actively activating joy in yourself is, is resistance. Yeah. I 100% agree. I talk about spreading queer joy all the time in my work and like using it as a mission to like use as a North Star, right? I think that spreading queer joy and centering queer joy and, you know, doing that with kids is so important. And yes, absolutely not talking about joy for the sake of talking about joy, but understanding that great joy comes from great suffering and that those two things are intertwined and so connected and we can 
look to where we've been resilient and turn and choose to turn towards something that is better and imagine something that is so much greater than that because that suffering has given us that imagination towards something so, so much better. And I agree that children are, there's a possibility around kids and around the future and and what young people stand for, which is this whole spiritness um, that we're talking about. And I think that it all it all comes back into itself and folds in on each other. And all of these ideas are heavy and intense and like our personal philosophies in this work are really deep and thoughtful and purposeful. But the way it presents to the world is in the vein of like a Mr. Rogers neighborhood, I think. And there's something that's so meaningful about it. And I don't know if I can quite put my finger on it or articulate it, but I don't know if it needs to be articulated. It's just really, f- for me, it's really fulfilling. And I and I think I maybe uh, have a little bit of a different approach because I think I, I am a little bit of a glass half full person to, to maybe to a fault, <laughs> uh, but I dream too hard and, and it doesn't always execute in the way <laughs> I hope it would. Um, but I don't. Uh, I think that we need we need both sides of that as well. Folks like us, I hope, and and the community that we come from of people who also do this work alongside us, coming at it from different perspectives is is so important from philosophical perspectives, but also from ex- perspectives of experience as well. Totally, yeah, I'm with you. It helps create balance, so that's always mm. good. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my goodness. Um, This is a beautiful conversation. Um, We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and we are going to answer a listener question. Okay, we are back with Emmy and we're going to answer our listener question. You ready, Emmy? Yes, I'm ready. All right, great. So this listener is curious about the word two-spirit and the identity two-spirit. So they're saying, I have just come across the identity two-spirit and I did a little bit of internet research, but I'm still a little bit confused because I am starting to question my gender identity and I'm wondering if that's an identity that is available to me. So can you tell me a little bit more about two-spirit and what that means? So two-spirit comes from an Ojibwe word and I cannot pronounce the word, so I'm not going to try, but it was created. It's a new contemporary term that was created in the nineties, um, at a conference. And so that's like a pan indigenous term Hmm. with the idea of having both masculine and feminine energy. Generally, that's like the standard understanding of two spirit. Mm -hmm. Um, it doesn't mean like queer trans in the way that, you know, like Western contemporary society thinks of that. It's not the same, Mm. but it's like connected for sure. You know, across many indigenous cultures, two spirit folks have a specific and designated role and responsibilities in their nation or tribe or community. It's definitely a term that is only for indigenous people. It shouldn't be used by anybody that is not indigenous, non-native. There's a lot of terms available to non-native people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, it's only for native folks and American native folks. I just want to clarify if that's something. No, 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 no. So two-spirit is a pan-indigenous term. So it's something mm. that like we might use by we, I mean like me and other indigenous folks, we might use that across difference, right? Mm. But in our own cultures, we have our own terms for that. 
Oh, okay. You know, but if I were to say to somebody like what our term is, they wouldn't know what I'm saying. So if we just say two spirit and they understand the essence of what we mean, right? Mm. But within our own cultures, our own languages, we have our own terms for those things. And, you know, sometimes that will be shared outside of their community. Sometimes that won't be shared. So it just depends. But yeah, two spirit is a pan indigenous term and um, it's specifically created for indigenous people. So should only be used by indigenous people. Mm, beautiful. Thank you for that explanation. That helped clarify things for me too. And I and I've and I've done some reading and like looking into and understanding two spirit identity, and that helped clarify some things for me as well. Um, because and across the globe, there are indigenous, trans, and and two spirit identities as well that have specific names. And I didn't think about that translating into quote unquote American Turtle Island two spirit identity. Uh, so in like Hawaii, it's Mahu. And there's also Hijra in India. And there's a there there are many others <laughs> that I can't, I'm not just gonna rattle off. Um, but I hadn't thought about that and like the diversity of the terminology and culturally specific um gender ideas that yeah. aren't just like the one thing for all native folks within Turtle Island. Yeah, we all have our own terms for things because we all have our own cultures and languages, right? We're not a mm-hmm. monolith. Our cultures are super diverse. And even the ways that like two-spirit folks are regarded within communities is very different too. There's a mm-hmm. lot of diversity in that. Some cultures, two-spirit folks might be um, a person that their designated role is to work with children mm-hmm. and they might be like story keepers in that way or in other communities, they might be somebody that um, has specific ceremonial roles. So it just depends mm-hmm. on the tribe, the nation. And yeah, there's a lot of diversity in terms of what that person or people do and what their responsibilities are. But I would say across many cultures, um, two-spirit folks or um, like in English way of thinking like tr- like queer and trans people are and were and have always been regarded as sacred mm. and as having a very special role. We were never seen as other. We were never seen as different. It was like women have a role, men have a role, two spirit people have a role. Mm. So you, everybody has a a role and that's how you keep balance, right? It's not like two spirit people are treated in the way that they're treated in American society. Mm. Yeah. And I'm also curious, do you do you identify as two spirit and trans? Or does does two spirit function as an umbrella term for you? I, I'm I'm just I'm curious about how you think about it for your yeah, identity. That's a good question. For myself, I identify as two spirit. I don't identify as trans. Mm. Um, and I also identify as queer. So mm. I identify as two spirit separate from identifying as queer because those are two different things. Mm. Other people, two spirit does include trans. So it just depends. Um, for our people, it does include trans, but I'm just saying like, for me, I don't identify as trans. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Cause I think okay. that, I mean, I think that the word trans is very, it's a very particular definition and it doesn't actually have anything to do with like how you feel inside necessarily. Like the definition of transness is about whether or not you identify with the gender you were assigned at birth by a doctor. And so it has more to do with a letter that was put on your birth certificate and whether or not you agree with that letter than it does about like how you like feel like it's not like a feeling word. Yeah. 
you know, for all of my adult life, I've mostly partnered with folks that are trans and I understand, you know, that experience from them and I don't identify in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, like that term doesn't resonate with me for myself. Um, I just don't care about the designation on my birth certificate. I also don't care about pronouns like for myself, right? Like you could really use any pronouns of me and I would be so fine with it. I really don't care. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just mean that like, it's not like I gravitate toward one or the other. It's just like a lot of people are used to using certain pronouns of me. I want people to know that like, you can't only use those pronouns of me. So that's why I have both. I just don't feel seen by a lot of English words, if that makes sense. Like it just doesn't resonate at all. So I just don't care. I think that's probably, probably a lot of people can relate to that. I would say two spirit for me means like having the energies of both masculine and feminine and not that has nothing to do with male and female. Like that's a different thing. Mm -hmm. It's more about like, how do I feel inside and what are the ways that my my imagination works? What are the ways that my dreams work? What are the ways that my love Mm. works? My stories, my responsibilities, right? Yeah. And I feel hostile (laughs) when I'm put into roles that are like specifically for women. So like if I'm told to do something because I'm quote unquote a woman, Mm. I'm not a woman. So that's actually like, I feel hostile with that, Mm. but I don't feel that way. I get put into roles that are specifically for men. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it feels like and and the what I'm hearing is that two spirit is closer to thinking about like non-binariness. Yes, exactly. Than like transness in itself. And it's interesting to hear that because I I didn't identify as trans for a really long time, but I identified as non-binary and I ended up kind of coming to transness for myself more as an alignment with the trans community more than like caring about my birth certificate and like the gender I was assigned at birth because I don't identify as a binary trans man, right? And like the the term trans is like, you know, transportation. It's about moving somewhere. And I don't necessarily feel like my gender like moved somewhere. It feels like it kind of ping pongs between like two points. And like the points are like maybe a little bit farther on the masculine side. But like now that I've had top surgery, I like feel a lot more comfortable in my body. And like I'm starting to experiment with my like feminine side too. And so it's been interesting to kind of think about that and like think about like okay why do i identify as trans why do i identify as non-binary and like hearing you talk about how you feel about being two spirit is 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 resonating for me in a lot of ways and this conversation is actually making me want to look up the um so in the torah there are seven uh recognized genders and i actually i, I need to look up the names of them cuz i'm kind of like okay maybe maybe like language from my like cultural background would resonate better than yes. like the english terminology that we're so used to and totally i don't know that just made me that like inspired me to do that yeah and that trans could be like um if if you decide that another term resonates more with you with a term that's from your culture trans could be like a like a pan mm-hmm. term right yeah um so people understand but like with with jewish folks specifically to use the the word that is in your language hmm. 
I don't know if a lot of people, uh, I mean, I'm a reformed Jew and <laughs> uh, reformed Jews are pretty cash about it. So I don't know if people would, if that would be anything that would be recognizable in the lexicon for the Jewish folks that I'm in community start with. It. But yeah, exactly. <laughs> start it. Why not? Um, and then before we, I also wanted to um, ask you about the term um, indigiqueer. And if you um, identify with that term, it's something that I've come up on in my research and I find, I found is really cool. Um, and yeah. I'm curious about your thoughts on that term too. Yeah, that term is really cool. I think that term is too cool for me. <laughs> <laughs> I, whenever I see it's like Joshua Whitehead using the indigenous queer, it's like, I'm not to that level. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that like when I, for some reason, this is like my envisioning of an, an indigenous queer, it's like two-spirit futurism. It's Ooh. like two-spirit folks that are contemporarily and in the future, like beyond understanding and just so far ahead of us in their thinking and in the ways that their brains work. Mm. Um, I think it's, I mean, it's definitely a contemporary as in now, right. Mm -hmm. Term it's only been around for like 10 years or so. It's not how I identify. If somebody used that with me, I wouldn't be insulted. I'd be like, Oh my God, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) But it's not how I like call myself, but I like that term in general. Um, it's also another pan-indigenous term. So mm. any any Native folks that identify in that way can use that. And I liked what you were saying earlier about moving, mm-hmm. about like this idea of motion and ping-ponging. It makes me think about the ways that we play with gender and even the ways that we view others as playing with gender. Mm. So I remember when I started growing my hair out, maybe like six years ago now, because I used to keep my hair short and I started growing it out when I started playing with my masculinity mm. because for me, the long hair is masculine. Like it reminds me of my father who always kept his hair really long. Mm. So to me, that's and like shaving the sides of my head that this is all playing with my masculinity. Right. But it's interesting when I'm like not read that way. Yeah. Cause that's different than how like white culture, like <laughs> Which I didn't realize mm-hmm. until that was like, framed that way for me that my long hair is like very feminine or beautiful. Wow. That's like not how I think of it. I think of it as like powerful, strong and masculine, you know? So it's just interesting the ways that we even, what our lens is even as queer people across cultures. Yeah, that's super interesting because I remember when I was misgendered a lot as, as male when I was a kid and I remember it like coming to a head at one point when I was a kid and coming, going to my mom and being like, I want to grow out my hair. And that was because I was tired of being misgendered as male and like wanting to like be able to control how people perceive my gender and like using long hair in like the opposite of what you're talking about in order to indicate that. So that's really interesting. Just like how culturally we come to gender and like how what are like the cultural cues and like what culture are we embodying for ourselves but then also like what culture are we walking through in like how we're being perceived and like where where can that be disjointed and like where can we manipulate that and control that and where is that a tool of the oppressor and like of colonization totally right even with the hair right that was the way one of the ways that they would harm us and complete their cultural genocide is cutting our hair. My father, whenever he would be incarcerated, because he was in and out of um, being incarcerated, each time they would chop his hair off. And to me, that was Mm. like castration. You know, that was like very feminized. That was them feminizing him. Like I remember thinking as a child that he looked more feminine with short hair. So that's like the cultural understanding, right? 
but I just never realized that I, it wasn't like made visible to me that that's how I understand mm. or that's how I was like taught to understand until I was made aware of the opposite of that. Mm. That makes sense. Yeah, no, it totally does. Oh my goodness. We've gone a lot of different places in this conversation. My brain is going all over the place. Um, but we do have to <laughs> end our conversation somewhere. Um, so I now is the time to um, shout out whatever you want to shout out, where can folks find you on the internet, um, and continue learning from you and <laughs> yeah, all of the things. Yeah, so my Instagram is at indigenizing arts ed. And that's my public Instagram. And I also post whenever I create workshops. Um, mm. And I also have a Patreon there. So all the things are at Indigenizing Arts Ed. Um, and I don't accept friend requests in my personal account. So that's that. <laughs> <laughs> Boundaries. And, love it. <laughs> yeah. And um, in terms of shouting out, I would just tell everybody to go to broadway.com where you can access. I think it's I think it's broadway.com or Broadway World whichever it is, the mm. um, Yanawana's Legend of the Blue Bonnet play, mm. because you can watch it there, a professional um, film version of, of the play that was performed live. And it's really beautiful. And you can watch that with your family. You can watch that with your students or just yourself. It's beautiful. And you can learn some of the songs. And yeah, so that's what I would recommend. Beautiful. We'll put the link to that in the description in the show notes. Um, fantastic. Thank you so much for spending time with me, Emmy. This has been a really beautiful conversation. And I'm, I'm so glad to have learned about all of our overlaps and where, where we come together in this work. Uh, it's been it's been truly a pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. And I'm glad that we finally got to connect. I feel like we've been, you know, boosting each other through <laughs> social media for a while now. And so it's cool to actually be able to have a conversation. So thank yeah, you. Exactly. Of course. Rainbow Parenting is hosted and created by me, Linz Amer. It's produced in partnership with Multitude and is edited by Misha Stanton. The theme music is by Amanda Darchangelis and the logo artwork is by Abe Tenzia.